back on the Zero Hour. I'm your host, Richard R.J. Eskow. I always look forward to talking with Max Blumenthal of the Gray Zone. That's thegrayzone.com. Max keeps uh, his eye on what's going on worldwide, uh, and there's a lot going on worldwide. And Max, first of all, welcome back to the program. Great to be back. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. And I thought we might start with, uh, there are interesting global tectonic shifts, it seems to me, underway. And two signs of that might be, you know how before there's an earthquake, you know, farmers say like the animals are restless. And I don't, it sounds like a disparaging uh, analogy. It's certainly not meant to be, but, you know, the birds fly in a certain way and the weather seems to change and all that. They do, I feel as if there's earthquake weather politically around the world right now and economically. And I think people are starting to react to what's being done to them, which I consider a fascinating, potentially hopeful sign. Um, one of, one of the signs of, of shift in the global mood that I see around us is, for example, a rebellion in Sri Lanka. The president fled the con- country. There's a farmer's protest in the Netherlands. I could name other uprisings and revolts we've seen in the past few months, but it seems to me this may be a sign of people responding to forces as diverse as war, climate change, impending economic collapse, or maybe I'm reading patterns that aren't there. I don't know. What do you think? Well, you wouldn't be the only one reading patterns that aren't there. Everyone from the economist to the German interior minister, Nancy Faeser, has warned of radical protests. That's the German interior minister's words coming this fall and winter as a result of fuel shortages and food shortages due largely to the proxy war in Ukraine, which I consider to be a war of choice by the West, which chose to provoke Russia. But before we get into that, um, it's important to play off this nature analogy you used. You know, whenever there's a, a massive wildfire, you see the animals come running down from the hills. They have this innate ability to survive and they understand when they're threatened here. What we have across the world or in much of the world are the plebeians, the people running from their elites who are the real threat. They're realizing that that they are the real threat to their survival and that their elites are in many ways operating in lockstep, uh, enacting policies that are antithetical to the survival of humanity in Sri Lanka, you had two policies enacted. I mean, there are so many other things the Sri Lankan government did, which were just due to sheer incompetence, stupidity, greed, and corruption, um, you know, taking massive amounts of Chinese loans and then spending it on useless projects that served, that did, didn't serve the population and then having China tell them at the end of the day, sorry, we're not going to forgive your debt. Um, that's That's one issue, but you know, two things Sri Lanka did, which are being pushed across the West. Number one were pandemic lockdowns, which devastated its tourism industry, cost over 200,000 jobs, it eviscerated what would be considered the middle class in Sri Lanka, and cut off much of the economy besides those jobs. 
all the um, ricochet effects that tourism has on the economy were completely eliminated. And then uh, its government declaring that Sri Lanka was going to, be, going to become this green paradise and eliminate fertilizer and implement organic farming across the board, which got it high ratings from environmental NGOs and multinational institutions and wound up spawning a massive food crisis. You have the same thing happening in the Netherlands now where farmers are shutting down large parts of the country because they actually have the power to do so. They're the producers because they're being told to stop, essentially stop farming. They're not being given any incentive to stop farming. They're just being told to stop because their fertilizer creates nitrogen, which goes up into the atmosphere and is supposedly very damaging, uh, produces a ton of carbon. And, these are mostly small farmers who will be supplanted by much larger farmers and lab-grown sources of food. And the way that they see it and the way that their advocates see it is that they are being victimized as part of a larger global plan put forward by institutions like the World Economic Forum and their partners in the capitalist Davos elite who want to simply eliminate farming itself and uh, put in place, uh, you know, bug food, essentially like artificial meat made of, that includes crickets, um, that there is a plan to replace them with uh, a kind of, not a global food production system that doesn't serve any sovereign or country. And it's the same spirit that informed, I think, the truckers' protests in Ottawa and the United States, where government bureaucrats were implementing policies, or, or what they would call technocrats, implementing policies that had nothing to do that that were not protecting their public health, were actually harming them, stripping them of their individual rights, and eroding the constitution or in Canada, the basic rights, the charter of rights enshrined under actually a liberal government headed by Pierre Trudeau, whose son stripped them of those basic rights in extra constitutional fashion under the banner of the pandemic. I went out to um, earlier this year and I have a documentary up at the gray zone about it, a short documentary, about 20 minutes long about the U.S. truckers, the, the people's convoy that gathered outside Washington, D.C. I would call it a failure. They failed for tactical reasons. They were basically parked in this muddy field in Hagerstown an hour outside Washington, but I got to go and interview them. And what they were really concerned about was not necessarily uh, a vaccine, a COVID vaccine. They were concerned about emergency law being used to erode the Constitution. And what they were demanding, their key demand, was the end of the emergency declaration issued in May 2020. And I thought that would be something that actually many liberals who believe in constitutional rights, individual rights, and democracy would support. So what we're seeing here, and we haven't even gotten into the Ukraine war, is a a faction of well, in Sri Lanka, it's different, but in the West, you have people who are producers or they're shipping the food. They have the power to do real damage to economies through their protests, and they are protesting what they see as the erosion of individual rights by a kind of radical center, which is itself guided 
by technocratic mandates and a series of policy prescriptions that are crafted not in capitals where there are elections and votes that determine mm-hmm. the people behind those policies, but in a gathering place for the global capitalist elite, which would specifically be Davos. So they're called conspiracists. They're accused of spreading disinformation. I personally think that they are actually on to something, and I can elucidate that more clearly. Um, they're also called far-right, white nationalists, hateful, Nazis, and at the same time, their protests are spreading they will spread and we could possibly see uh, martial law in parts of Western Europe by this winter as a result. Let me draw a pair or try to draw a parallel and see what you think. And, and give me a second to kind of sketch it out. Uh, recently there was, uh, there were some stories around uh, the author of a very popular novel called Where the Crawdads Sing, which I haven't read and don't intend to, but she spent some time in Africa with her husband, and the husband apparently was implicated in, in the murder of a poacher. Uh, he was a conservationist, and the poacher was poaching elephants or something, and I knew something about it. I'd been in Africa several times, and uh, I had you know, seen something of the anti-poaching movement, which was basically... You know, it's a, a good cause trying to preserve, uh, you know, uh, wildlife, uh, rhinos and elephants and so on. But if there is a collusion between the people who are trying to survive in these countries and then Westerners and other elites who come in to preserve the animals with the cost of the livelihood of the people who live there. So this is not a matter of uh, conflicting local values. Uh, it's a matter of uh elite values which you know many of us will be sympathetic to versus local survival and i also did a piece in around that time 2014 about uh thomas friedman writing about mozambique and uh, uh sort of cavelling for lack of a better word about mozambique's ambitions to be an eco-friendly economy at the same time that it you know i believe had the poorest standard of living of any country in the world and so on and so on so you have this kind of collision of elite values that sound good and high-minded. Meanwhile, people are starving and dying and so on. So I think uh, what I'm trying to get at here is these high-minded values that everybody can get behind, but the people who are paying the price for it uh, are working people. The people who are expected to sacrifice are the people who are suffering already uh, while the people at Davos and, uh, you know, maybe at foundations and think tanks and elsewhere with six-figure salaries or more uh, are coming up with wonderful plans and being airlifted into these countries for thousands of dollars a day. You got what I'm driving at, right? No, that's a great – it's a great analogy. And we we should also interrogate, especially those of us who come from the left or more progressive backgrounds, should interrogate – whether these plans that seem well-intentioned actually work and why the people who are most victimized by these sweeping and these sweeping policies that are crafted in incredibly undemocratic fashion see them as Malthusian. Um, they see them as some aspect of population control. Why do they think that way? 
can we just dismiss them as conspiracy theorists? Um, consider the emergency declaration in March 2020, which g- gave way to the lockdowns and quarantines and school closures in the United States. There are study after study showing the Johns Hopkins University study, uh, University of Munich study about Germany's lockdowns, which were much more intense than those of the United States, that they did absolutely nothing to slow the spread. What we do know, and this you can just open up yesterday's edition of the New York Times to see the toll that these school closures took on poor youth going to public schools who were deprived of schooling, is that they did enormous social damage, may have killed tens of thousands of people. A new uh, UNICEF report, I believe it was UNICEF, it was a UN report, found that children around the world missed their routine vaccination appointments uh, as a result of the lockdowns and the disproportionate focus on COVID vaccinations. Uh, we saw a spike in violent crime in 2020, especially crime with handguns, homicides. That was unprecedented. A spike in opioid deaths that was unprecedented. I mean, the statistics are all there for us to see. And now that the hysteria of the pandemic is over, the mainstream media feels free to discuss it. But they always refer to it as simply the toll of the pandemic, not the toll of policy choices that were made without popular input. Um, we can also look at uh, the expansion of NATO to Finland and Sweden. Right. These votes were not taken by, through a referendum or a plebiscite. They were simply declared by leaders who obviously have no understanding of their implications, including one of the youngest leaders in the world in Finland, Sanna Marin. And why did the Finnish government say that they were taking this vote to expand NATO to Russia's borders to end Finland's traditional stance of uh, neutrality towards Russia, or at least a kind of balanced foreign policy that is based on its own national security concerns and geopolitical kind of it's, 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 ge- it's geographic location. They said that they needed to, that, that they could not allow the public to have any input on this vote because of the fear of Russian active measures or Russian propaganda corrupting the public's mind. That's how terrified our elites are of the public as they issue these sweeping demands that take us closer and closer to catastrophe. And then we have the whole issue of the, the climate emergency, which is a massive debate now in the United States because Biden has stepped back from issuing a climate emergency declaration. Most progressives look at that and they say, why? Why would he do this? It's because Biden is a, a centrist and he's pro-business. I don't know if that's exactly the case. I don't know if it's the right thing to do if we consider the implications of this declaration. All it is is taking more money from the public without any democratic input. It's, again, another emergency declaration. These have only existed in the United States for 50 years. Every president in the last 50 years has issued one, but Biden would be issuing one in response to a longstanding problem, not an immediate emergency. I don't care how, you know, we have a hot week that doesn't necessitate an emergency declaration that gives the president extra constitutional powers. What it mean, what, what it would do is take more money from the public to provide subsidies to an industry that is failing, specifically the renewable energy industry, but which has a massive lobby that has 
disproportionate power within the Democratic Party and has green billionaires behind it. Mike Bloomberg, for example, who has given something like $60 million to the Sierra Club, which shares an office upstairs from the um, sun, Sunrise Movement. And Mike Bloomberg has invested heavily in green technology because it represents the future or a future trove of profits for the global capitalist class, trillions of dollars of profits that have been untapped. Why? Because this is a new technology, electric lithium batteries. And what does this technology rely on? Does it rely on just the air and the the air blowing and the sun beaming down into solar panels? No, it relies on heavy mining, heavy mining specifically in the global south, uh, in places where it's impossible to regulate illegal mining like the Congo, where children are deep in those mines. Heavy mining that has driven global instability that helped drive the coup in Bolivia. Elon Musk, one of the mavens of solar and other green technology, boasted that we'll coup whoever we want after Bolivia's pre- uh, President Evo Morales was literally run out of the country by right-wing forces. Bolivia is a, a center of lithium mining. So we haven't even debated what these mean. The climate emergency declaration would simply mean subsidizing an industry that relies has relied uh, over and over on public subsidies just to keep it alive. Why? Because it cannot do, unfortunately, what fossil fuels or nuclear can do, which is to power a massive industrialized economy. There is no model that demonstrates that by 2050, the United States can just shut off fossil fuel and nuclear energy and replace everything with renewables. And the models that have attempted to prove that have been completely discredited, like the one by Mark Jacobson, uh, who, I mean, I don't want to get into the details of his mind. Right. And, as re- and I guess the on, is, the, on the, the point is, our, just the point is, RJ, okay. that we, we hear about, we, we hear about these crises. We're told that it's an emergency and we're told to shut off our cognitive faculties and our critical thinking and just go along with it because we as progressives want to solve the crisis. But in reality, if we go de- further down the road, we strip ourselves further of democracy and possibly kill large numbers of people in the process. Well, yeah. And I, I you know, I, I've been trying to like figure out what percentage I agree with you and don't uh, agree with you. And I think I largely agree with you. I mean, I think the part where I don't agree with you, I do think it's an emergency. So, I mean, on some rhetorical level, there is some sense that, yeah, well, at least there's an acknowledgement it's an emergency. But there's declaring it an emergency. Then there's Joe Biden declaring it an emergency, right, which is a whole other thing, because what Joe Biden will do by declaring it an emergency is very different from what you or I would do declaring an emergency. And in terms of the climate situation itself, I think the whole discussion I mean, I'm saying what I think you're saying, which is I think the whole discussion is broken until we address it by understanding that the problem is the consumption of energy, not, you know, that our civilization is based on. We can't fix it by saying we're going to live the way we live now, but we're going to do it with solar. We're going to do it with alternative sources of energy, but we're still each going to have our own cars. We're all, you know, it's not going to work that we're still going to have disposable everything. No, it's not going to work that way. We're going to have a very different 
mass transit, communal, you know, the world will have to look very different in order for us to, if we can, uh, develop a sustainable uh, civilization, which, uh, you know, I question whether we'll be able to make that happen. So in that sense, you know, I would say I majority agree with you. There's a part of me that says, yeah, well, I mean, it might be good if people understood that it was an emergency. But on the other hand, people go, who don't support Joe Biden anyway? We go, yeah, it's just Biden anyway. Who cares? You get what I'm saying? Yeah, I get what you're saying. I mean, there are other components to the emergency declaration that would also be devastating for humanity today or damaging to humanity. For example, it would forbid the U.S. from exporting crude oil to Europe or exporting crude oil, period. Europe is depending on the U.S. to export right. crude oil and liquid natural gas because it's cut off its oil and gas from Russia. It was getting cheap oil and gas from Russia, and it's heading into a very dark winter. And that winter would get much darker without the help of the U.S. So Europe would be destabilized more than it already has been. And it would forbid imports from countries that are deemed by the United States, not by uh, multinational institutions, to not be meeting certain climate goals. Right. And that refers specifically to China, which is responsible for pretty much the entire global growth of the middle class. Right. It has moved hundreds of millions of people into the middle class in its own country through coal and fossil fuels, which is no endorsement on my part of coal and fossil fuels, but that's really what it took for them to to um, increase the lifespan of its population by like a decade, increase literacy, and completely change the lives of people. Uh, China is now building nuclear plants in the, across the global south to foster further energy independence. And so what it would mean, it's targeted at China, is, you know, a trade war, more Cold War hostility. And I don't see, though, how that actually, in at least in the near term, helps the climate. I think technology will play a huge part in reducing greenhouse gases, we are not having a real debate here. We're living through a series of emergencies. We're living under emergency rule. Um, and that also extends to our national security state. And there is never any real de debate in Washington over the insanity of what's been happening in Ukraine, not just since February 24th, but for the past eight years. Everything is seen through the lens of anti-Russian hostility. And there is no accountability for what the U.S. and its vassals or, or junior partners in Europe have been doing to provoke Russia into this invasion, which has led to a complete dearth of fertilizer supplies and wheat deliveries, not only to Europe, but to, the, to across the global south. It's another factor fueling the riots in Sri Lanka, is that their food is not arriving. But there's also been bread riots in Iraq. In other countries, Panama is having massive demonstrations now in the streets that are turning restive. And this also has to do with shortages. And Which is exactly where I wanted to go yeah. right now in the conversation, which is, you know, I normally, you know, would ask you to punch me in the face if I ever use a word like synergistic. But one of the things that is really 
important for, I think, for Americans to understand about our proxy war, and I agree with you, it is a proxy war in Ukraine, is the synergistic effect of what we're doing there is could starve tens of millions of people and is already beginning to, I believe, right? Yeah. So... Uh, there again, as in a way with the, uh, you know, with some of the other, uh, things we're seeing around the world with the truckers and some of the, uh, the farmers and others, we're seeing elite choices affecting people at the very bottom of the economic food chain, right? Well, it's, it's hilarious if you read the coverage of the Panama demonstrations, they talk about how the protests have actually cause shortages of food products, fuel, and medicine. But the protests are related to exorbitant fuel and food costs. And why, 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 why is this happening? Specifically, because the United States made the decision to provoke Russia, to poke the Russian bear, and reality crashed through. Putin wasn't going to allow the U.S. to move billions of dollars of weapons on his, on, into his frontiers, onto his borders. Putin and the Russian public, this war is extremely popular in Russia because it is a war of national survival. They don't want to go back to the 1990s when they had lost their sovereignty and were under the control of the U.S. and, by extension, the IMF. That's how they see it. Right. So it's it's an existential war for them, and they're, they're not paying the same cost because they are a producer nation as import ex- nations who run along import-export lines like Panama are. And so this is going to continue to spread. And once again, we're not having a debate we're not, our, our media isn't explaining to us why this is happening. Why isn't, for example, wheat getting out of Ukraine, which is one of the main breadbaskets of Europe? It's not because Russia will not allow it to come out. It's because the Ukrainian military mined the Odessa harbor to prevent a Russian amphibious assault, which right now is not forthcoming. Maybe it will in the future. Um, but the Ukrainian military refuses to remove the mines. And the U.S. C- continues to push Ukraine to fight and fight instead of negotiate some form of neutrality. There's this this mantra in Washington about preventing Putin from having an exit ramp. Jim Risch, the senator from Idaho, said we need to keep this war going as long as possible. And, well, we can deduce from that that there is a lot of money to be made off this war in Washington. The $40 billion aid package to Ukraine, which every member of the progressive squad voted for, uh, Even Barbara Lee voted for it, I believe. Barbara, Barbara Lee voted for it on the grounds. She, she told MSNBC that it had to be done because of Russian disinformation. That was her explanation. It was completely incoherent. All that money is coming back to the area where I'm sitting right now, which is Washington, D.C. and our right. suburbs. It's going back to Colorado. It's going back to California and Texas, where the arms industry has its uh, producer centers. It's going back to Troy, Alabama, which was visited by Joe Biden as he touted the economic benefits of the war in Ukraine to a factory filled with Raytheon workers in a town where Raytheon was the basically the main company. It's a company town. This is what our global elite is thinking about. They're not thinking about people starving in Panama. They're not thinking about where which country will get hit next. There's a simple way to end this crisis. This isn't an oil war. I mean, this is, this is the, this is the other thing. Like, this isn't some science fiction movie where humanity's fighting a war over oil that is not plentiful. It's not Mad Max. We're fighting these, people are starving and suffering. 
because of wars of choice and economic wars that have cut off energy that is plentiful, cheap, and just sitting there waiting to fuel homes all across Europe. And all our leaders need to do, they're not really our leaders, all, all these elites need to do is simply end the war. And one of the things, side effects of this war of choice, uh, as I see, and I hear different opinions about it, but it seems to me watching it, the rubles, the ruble is strong. Uh, it seems to me I'm seeing more and more, you know, for a while we had America's this whole financial, military, economic superpower. I'm seeing more and more since this war began, new alliances began, Russia and Iran, Russia, you know, not really Russia and China, but kind of, I'm seeing new sort of tentacles or relationships springing up economically. It seems to me that perhaps I'm wrong, but I got the impression, I'm getting the impression that this is accelerating the development of an alternative financial system to the United States, whether it's the SWIFT electronic transaction system or other kinds of financial exchanges. Am I right about that or am I jumping the gun? Well, it's part of a process that's leading in that direction. Right now, we're not there yet. De-dollarization hasn't really taken place, but Russia is forcing the issue by pushing nations to buy its oil, linking, first of all, its commodities to gold and pushing countries to buy in rubles instead of in the dollar or the petrodollar, to buy its oil in rubles. And Russia's imports have been hit heavily by U.S. sanctions, but its exports are surging. Uh, India is not playing this game. India, which is a member of the Quad, the U.S. anti-China alliance, India, which is heavily, closely allied with the U.S., refuses to go along with the U.S. economic war because its leadership understands how much economic deprivation that would cause in a country where most people are living below the poverty line. And so Russia's making an enormous profit off of oil sales. It's raking in billions every week. So it's, a, it's ruble is stronger than at pre-war levels. This is after Joe Biden boasted in his major speech in support of or touting the proxy war in Ukraine before an audience in Poland that the ruble had been completely tanked. He put it at 200 rubles to the dollar, which is, was completely false at the time. It was 100. Now it's like 50 to the dollar. This is a huge blow to the image of the U.S. as a global hegemon and the reality. For Russians, they're accustomed to, first of all, having lived through the 90s if they're of a certain generation. If they're of a, another generation, they know about the pain of World War II and its aftermath. And even since the 90s, the millennial generation is not as accustomed to the same kind of standard of living as the American middle class or even the American lower middle class. So they can take a little economic pain. So far, the pain has come in the form of uh, technology disruptions. Some of their cell phones, like the updates aren't coming. They, They lost Netflix they lost McDonald's. They replaced McDonald's with a national version of McDonald's. I'm kind of envious that they lost Netflix. 
I hope I wish we would lose Netflix. <laughs> I wish we would lose I wish we would lose TikTok as well. TikTok is a weapon of psychological warfare directed at young Americans. And I would love for some country, I mean, it used to be owned by China. I would love for them to take it away from us. But the, you know what? So the Russians can't watch cuties on Netflix. That's a real loss for them. So for the Russians who have spent time in Western Europe or the United States who are upper class or upper middle class from that tiny Russian elite, who go, who've left Russia uh, in protest and gone to Istanbul to live in nice apartments there. Yeah, this is a painful scenario for them. But for the rest of the Russian public, it isn't affecting them. And that's important for us as Americans to recognize because we had these phony rented generals on MSNBC, like Lieutenant General Mark Hurdling, one of the biggest frauds in TV com- military commentary history who's still, I think, a contributor at MSNBC, were predicting that there would imminently be protests in Moscow that would topple Putin. And what did we see? Putin's approval rating went up like 15 points. Well, so they, it's I, completely backfired. They didn't welcome us as liberators? Well, I mean... It, Apparently not. It's like there's this... The, the Russians are seen sort of different than um, Iraq by the liberal intelligentsia who I know very well. Like I, you know, I come from Washington DC and yeah. um, the East coast. We, we know them, but they, they're they, seen they, they, as, but they're seen as something people not like us. They aren't seen as a kind of yeah. less. I mean, that's my impression as uh, you know, my people come from Russia, technically Ukraine. I keep telling my guests I'm eligible for Ukrainian citizenship if I want it. So yeah, no, uh, but they're seen as somehow not, although it's Ukrainian Jewish, which is not the same. But, you know, uh, they, there is a sense that Russians are, you know, savage and uh, somehow, to, isn't there, you know, I mean, that, uh, uh, that there's a culture of primitive. Yeah. I mean, there's, there, you know, there's two, there, there's so many different images of the Russian in uh, American culture, but, you know, when it, comes to Iraqis or Arabs, it's typically just an image of a terrorist or people who, uh, you know, they resisted us in, in, in Iraq because they're terrorists. It's just much more of an Orientalist vision. But in Russia, yes, there's the, the Russian hacker who's devious and lies. <laughs> James, like as James Clapper, former director of national intelligence, said the Russians are genetically predisposed to lying and deception. Then there's the stupid Russian Slav who's seen as kind of uh, enjoys a dictatorship and likes being sent to work in quarries for Stalin. Uh, but then and you drinks have much a, vodka. Then you have the hope of Russia, which among the liberal intelligentsia, they, they all know like one or maybe or know of one Russian intellectual. It's usually Masha Gessen, who to me isn't much of an intellectual. And they worship them. They love them. They see them. Like Masha Gessen, you can see how she dresses up to look like some Tolstoy figure with like plaid jackets and, you know, completely trades off the image of some uh, quirky intellectual. And the liberal intelligentsia believes that at least in Moscow, these people hold sway over the population and that eventually they'll be listened to and that there's a hope. It's the same way they see liberal Zionists in Israel uh, because they once had their kind of 
moment of glory with Yitzhak Rabin and the signing of the Oslo Accords. And I think for the liberal intelligentsia, Ukraine has kind of replaced Israel as Israel has drifted to the far right and fallen under the permanent control of right-wing figures like Netanyahu. You now have a caretaker prime minister. He'll be gone. And you so left out they can no Russia, longer... You left out the poet with the, like Vajnesensky with that shock of hair. Yeah. And in yeah. Israel, you left out the liberal Zionist who'll take the home in East Jerusalem, but it, but he's tormented about it. Yeah, yeah. He, he sh- the shooting and crying. Right. <laughs> but it all, it all fits in with, you know, yeah. that they're so sensitive. They were forced to do this to save their home but it it all hits the same kind of pleasure center in the liberal american mind thank god we're here to help them so i see you know ukrainian flags every day when i go out across the river from where i live in washington i live in a mostly black area of washington ward eight there's it's being gentrified and when the gentrifiers come here they all plant flags on their house like they just landed on the moon and there's no one here like they'll put like a, a giant U.S. flag and a giant rainbow LGBTQIAA plus flag up. And they're just like, we're here. Uh, but there are very few of them. They're coming, but there are very few of them. And the flag is like how you know a white person lives there. Um, and then if you go across the river, it's closer to Capitol Hill. You see Ukrainian flags like everywhere. Um, in Georgetown in Washington, there were Ukrainian flags draped across an entire street. So it meant that there was total consensus on that block, uh, that Ukraine was not only under attack and a victim, but that Ukraine symbolized democracy. And so to me, Ukraine has kind of replaced Israel uh, for the liberal intelligentsia uh, that has given up on Israel since its division of the kind of 90s Oslo dream failed. And their vision of Ukraine is completely delusional. I mean, it's the one of the most, it's, it's according to Western NGOs that are funded by the State Department, like Transparency International, it is the second most corrupt country in Europe next to Russia. And, you know, anyone needs, all you need to do is look at the disclosures from Hunter Biden's cell phone, which was recently hacked has been completely ignored by mainstream media, amazing discipline to know how corrupt that country is, yet we're supposed to be delivering it billions of dollars a day almost every week. It is a country where gay pride has come under attack year after year in Kiev. I know I'm not allowed to say Kiev. I have to say Kiev now some for some reason. But in Kiev, the capital, gay pride at parades have come under attack again and again, by Nazis that are funded by the Ukrainian interior ministry, specifically from the National Corps, which is the civilian wing of the Azov Battalion, who've now become the heroes of the Beltway think tank class because they defended defended Mariupol while holding civilians hostage and shooting at fleeing civilians from the Russian and Donetsk People's Republic militia, Russian military and that militia. So... Uh, we can go on and on about what Ukraine really is. But you have this figure in Zelensky who plays, I think, the same role Yitzhak Rabin played in the 1990s in Israel, a figure whose sole purpose is to paper over the reality beneath the surface. And it's a reality of quasi-fascism driven by the radical center in the West, our elites have been supporting this kind of fascistic element. 
they are not. And Zelensky, who wrote out, who ran on a platform of negotiating a, yeah. a peace deal with Russia. Well, now he's faced uh, his. I, I don't know how many assassination attempts he's faced, but they're these aren't hit squads coming from being dispatched by the Kremlin. He has just right. fired the head of his SBU, which is the Ukrainian version of the CIA and FBI, uh, at which it also operates all of the ultranationalist battalions. And he fired his chief prosecutor and called them traitors the same day that it was announced by his one of his top advisors that he survived an assassination attempt. So what's going on in that country? People are trying to kill Zelensky within the state, it appears. Why are they trying to do that? Is it because he refuses to end the war and so many young men are being thrown into the wood chipper in eastern Ukraine where Zelensky himself estimates that 100 men are dying every day, but the number may be even higher? It's a completely lost cause militarily in the east. Is that why? Is it because they... Or is it because they want to fight on and Zelensky wants to negotiate? As we, as you said, RJ, he came into office with a massive public mandate to negotiate, according to the Minsk Accords, the end of this grinding eight-year conflict with pro-Russian separatists in the East. I don't know the answer to that, but the country has been completely destabilized, and whoever's in charge is being pushed by our leadership to continue this disastrous war for pro- Profit, and they've sold it to the liberal intelligentsia as a war for democracy. And when he came in, you know, I distinctly remember him saying, I want two things. I want weapons and I want to be able to negotiate. And the U.S., I, I, as I would call it, U.S. said, you can have the weapons, forget the negotiation. There were statements from the Defense Department made it clear, no, you know, we're not talking, negotiations aren't a good idea. I felt like, it, you know, we kept saying negotiations for about three weeks. This is how I would call it. And then basically, oh, okay, forget the negotiations. Uh, and I, I don't know whether it was the U.S. demurals, his own, you know, uh, fascist battalions telling him we'll kill you if you keep pushing that or both. But he seemed to drop the negotiations thing after a while. Well, That's how Johnson, I remember it. Yeah, Boris Johnson went and visited. Oh, right. Yeah, right, right. before Boris Johnson was himself afflicted by the Putin curse and has now been basically is going is due to be replaced by some clown of the Tories any minute um, or any day. He went to Kiev, according to Pravda Ukraine, the one of the top Ukrainian papers to demand that Zelensky not negotiate an end to the conflict. Britain, the UK has gone further than the United States and further than any country in pushing this war. Yeah, that was insane. Well, listen, Max, there are a million things we could talk about, so we'll just have to have you back, but it's great to catch up with you, even though, you know, things are insane. So, well, I think it's an opportunity, and it's 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 sad to see that the the left and whatever remains of the anti-war movement has not been seizing this opportunity. It's an opportunity to to push really hard for an end to this conflict, to push to to explain to Americans that NATO expansion has led to a rise in their fuel prices and a worsening of their economic situation, to explain the cost of empire to people, and to get out in the streets and campaign against the real threat that we face. The real threat, not to say that the the right wing is great and the right wing is does not threaten 
particular uh, particularly marginalized people. But the real threat we face is not from the far right. It's from the radical center. And this is an opportunity for the left to actually stand up and get in the way, form a popular front in defense of the survival of humanity, because that's what we're talking about here. Uh, and it would be a real tragedy if when the global protests hit, and they're going to happen, as we talked about at the, at the top of this conversation, that the right would be able to co-opt them yeah, no, to you're, advance its own agenda. You're absolutely right. And one shorthand way for the left to remember what to do is wherever there's cops beating up a guy and wherever somebody doesn't have enough to eat, seriously, that's where the left, if cop, the left remembers that, more often than not, they'll stay on the right side of this struggle and they'll be able to build that popular front, right? Inshallah. Yeah, inshallah. All right, man. So Max Blumenthal, uh, thegrayzone.com, latest book is The Management of Savagery. As always, great talking with you, and as always, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for the great conversation, as always. We'll be right back after this. I'm Richard R.J. Escal, and this is The Zero Hour.